This is Ozarks at Large for Thursday, June 23rd, 2022. I'm Kyle Kellams. Just ahead, another legal procedure in the West Memphis 3 case today. Michael Hiblin with our partner station KUAR in Little Rock has more. Later, a chorus line is a Tony and Pulitzer winning mainstay of theater. The next manifestation of the production will be an international tour, and the finishing touches are being applied this month at Walton Arts Center. That original production, by the way, in 1975, has a direct connection to this new production. Bayork Lee, an original member of the cast, is directing. More about that in about 20 minutes. And Davy Carter, former member of the Arkansas legislature and a current bank president, considers local, state, and national economies in this week's Northwest Arkansas Business Journal report. A hearing is scheduled today with a judge to consider a request by one of three men convicted in the 1993 murders of three eight-year-old West Memphis boys. Michael Hiblin, with our partner station KUAR in Little Rock, has a discussion about the case. For two years, attorneys for Damian Eccles have wanted evidence collected in the 1993 murders to undergo modern DNA testing. Eccles, Jason Baldwin, and Jesse Miss Kelly Jr. were convicted of the killings, but in 2011 were allowed to enter a so-called Alford plea in which they pleaded guilty and were released from prison while still maintaining their innocence. Joining me is George Jared, a reporter with Talk Business and Politics, who has been following this case for years. Hi, George. Hey, Michael. Thanks for having me. This is a big day for people who have been following this case. Crittenden County Circuit Judge Tanya Alexander will consider the request. First, what are we expecting in this hearing? Uh, Well, what I'm expecting is that Damian Eccles' defense attorneys will lay out the case as to why the state should be doing advanced DNA testing on certain items in this case. Particularly, they want the shoelaces tested for touch DNA. And the reasoning is pretty simple. The shoelaces have a rough kind of porous surface. And so the killer tied those shoelaces around the uh, ankles and wrists of the victims. So the killer or killers had to have intimate contact with those particular items. And there's a good chance that they left skin cells in those shoelaces. And this new MVAT DNA testing method is very good at pulling DNA out of porous surfaces. So I think they're going to build the argument that they should be tested. You know, I'm sure a lot of people are wondering why uh, the state wouldn't just test them. And that's a question that maybe prosecutors will answer in the courtroom. Given the advances in DNA testing over the years, why has it been such a challenge for uh, this to happen? Michael, I don't really know, because first off, you know, they allowed DNA testing when the guys were in prison in 2002. They, they allowed it to happen then. And so you would think with modern, you know, much, much better DNA testing methods, they wouldn't have, it should just be a pass-through. I don't, I don't think anybody can understand why they wouldn't test it. I mean, you know, if, if, if the state's contention is, is that Damien Eccles, Jason Baldwin, and Jesse Miss Kelly Jr. are culpable in this crime, then they should have no fear of DNA testing because, Um, obviously you would expect their DNA to show up. Imagine being convicted of a crime and then you have to sue the state to get them to do advanced DNA testing. So in April of 2021, I was actually at a lunch with the prosecutor in case, Keith Cressman, and I asked him at the lunch, I said, so are you going to allow this advanced DNA testing to take place? 
Because what happened is, is Eccles' defense team had approached Scott Ellington, the former prosecutor, and asked him if they could do the testing. And Scott seemed to be amenable to that. Well, then Scott got elected to a special judge uh, spot. It was a special election. So he became a judge. And so then Keith Cressman was appointed by the governor to this spot. At that meeting, Keith Cressman told me that he was going to order the ask a judge to have the evidence destroyed. And his rationale for that was is that it was coming up on the 10-year anniversary. And, and not a lot of people know this, but in a lot of murder cases, if, there, if, if there's capital punishment isn't involved, after 10 years, the evidence is destroyed because they can't keep that volume of evidence in storage. Of course, I did make the comment to him at the time. I said, do you really want to ask for the evidence in this case destroyed? So then... Not too long after that, stories started circulating that the evidence had been destroyed in a fire, that it had been lost, that they didn't know where it was at. So the, the Eccles team spent months and months and months trying to figure out where this evidence was. Well, to make a long story short, in December of 2021, they found the evidence all perfectly intact in the West Memphis Police Department's evidence locker room. Any idea uh, how quickly we could see action in this case? Do we expect uh, Judge Alexander to issue a decision immediately or take this under advisement and then come back later? I think the expectation is it'll probably take anywhere from 30 to 90 days would be my guess. Now, I will say this. Judges, they can make spot decisions. It's entirely possible she could make a decision. I would not anticipate that. I would anticipate it taking um, some scope of time. You're just trying to find the answers to who killed these three little boys. And so um, um, we'll see how the judge rules. I mean, people have asked me to speculate as to how I think she will rule. I've never dealt with it. I've never been in this judge's courtroom before. Uh, you know, I don't know the rhythms of her courtroom. I don't know her thought processes. So we'll see what happens. But I would I would expect it to come later in the summer. And you've interviewed Eccles before. Tell me about the his push here for uh testing. He continues to maintain his innocence. Uh, what's motivating him here? You know, I think his main motivation is he wants to clear his name. Uh, he doesn't want to be labeled a child killer, and he wants the state to test this stuff. And, you know, it's getting, you know, I'm a journalist. I, I'm not I'm not biased in any form or fashion. I can tell you this in my entire journalism career, which has spanned, you know, the better part of 20 years, I've never known a guilty person to sue the state to do advanced testing on the evidence in their case. I mean, it almost sounds ludicrous coming out of my mouth, but that's exactly what's happening. And this case has gotten so much attention, documentary films and books. Uh, is that, I assume that's also a factor here with, uh, you know, for prosecutors and I guess everyone who's been involved in this case going back to 1993. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, there have been documentaries and there have been books written. I've even written a book about this case, about my covering of it. And um, I'm sure that some, there's probably some motivations there. I can't speak to what the prosecutor's motives are in, in trying to, to fight this DNA testing from happening. It could be the fact that if it's proved conclusively that these three guys didn't do it and somebody else's DNA is on those shoestrings, possibly the state, maybe the state's worried about, you know, possibly being sued later on down the road for wrongful conviction. 
you know, because part of the deal that got them out of prison in 2011 was that they did not have the option of suing the state for wrongful conviction. So maybe that's part of motivation. I don't know. I've tried to talk to the prosecutor a couple of times after this, but he's obviously not talking about this right now, which again, that's not uncommon. Um, you know, I, I know a lot of prosecutors, they, you know, if it's an ongoing thing, of course, one of the differences in this case is this is not an ongoing case. I mean, this is a settled case. And, you know, and I, I try to explain to people how bizarre the situation is, is because, you know, if you're a Damian Eccles or Jason Baldwin or Jesse Miss Kelly Jr., what motive do you have for pursuing this? Because if you did do it, there's a possibility that your DNA could be on anything that they test. They could decide to test anything. And so by pursuing this, you could be opening the door of exposing to the public that you're guilty because here's the thing. Even if they found their DNA on all this stuff, they're not going, they're not going to spend one more day in jail. Their case is adjudicated from that standpoint, but they have a lot of public supporters. You know, they make a living off of some of the stuff, you know, that's connected to this case. So they're risking a lot more. Literally, if they did it, if anybody could explain to me what benefit they would get from it, I would really like to know if they did it. Now, if they didn't do it, the benefit is they don't they're not going to be tarnished and labeled as child murderers for the rest of their lives. And if there is other DNA evidence found, any idea if this could potentially reopen this investigation? I I would hope so. If they find DNA, I mean, it, it should. If they find DNA that doesn't belong to the three men who are technically convicted of the crime, I mean, because the thing about it is there's there's almost no excuse. Michael, ask yourself this question. How many times has anybody ever touched your shoelaces? Right. It kind of answers itself. So they, if anybody else's DNA is on those shoelaces, especially if it's touch skin DNA, if they find somebody else's, I, I would think that there would be an outcry to reopen this case. That's George Jarrett with Talk Business and Politics, who has been covering this case for more than a decade and will be covering the hearing. George, thanks very much. Thanks for having me. In Little Rock, I'm Michael Hiplin. A federal appeals court is upholding an Arkansas law requiring people and companies doing business with the state to sign a pledge not to boycott Israel. The Eighth Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals yesterday ruled the law does not violate the right to free speech under the First Amendment of the Constitution, overturning a previous court ruling. The Arkansas Times first sued over the law, which required the newspaper to sign the pledge to sell advertising space to the University of Arkansas Pulaski Technical College. The court ruled the Arkansas law relates only to economic decisions and does not restrict free speech. Arkansas Times publisher Alan Leverett says he disagrees with the ruling and will meet with attorneys from the American Civil Liberties Union to discuss the next steps. A summit devoted to problem solving taking place in Bentonville this autumn will include a former United States Secretary of State as the headliner. Organizers of the inaugural America Leads and Ideas Summit say the 66th U.S. Secretary of State, Condoleezza Rice, will speak in Bentonville in October. The summit will be hosted by Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. KUAF is supported by Fayetteville Animal Shelter and Services, supported by the City of Fayetteville, 
and dedicated to the welfare of animals and the people who associate with them. Information at 444-3456 or Fayetteville Animal Services on Facebook. KUAF is supported by Opal Agafier's Ozark Mountain Soul Fest, June 30th through July 2nd at the farm in Eureka Springs. More than 12 bands will perform during this two-day music festival, which includes three nights of camping and a variety of vendors on site. OpalAgafier.com for tickets and more information. Happy Thursday. This is Ozarks at Large. Thanks to the people behind the scenes of the Bentonville Film Festival for asking me to be included in yesterday's first day of festival activities. I moderated a conversation with Jenny and Dave Mars, hosts of HGTV's From Fixer to Fabulous. The entire HGTV crew was there. I don't know. Maybe you'll, we'll see part of it in season four of the program. The Bentonville Film Festival continues through the weekend with screenings, discussions, and more. And you can find out more, including finding a schedule at bentonvillefilm.org. Eureka Springs United Women in Faith formerly United Methodist Women, is sponsoring a free film screening of Dawn Land Tuesday at 2 in the afternoon and 6 that evening, both screenings in the Carroll Electric Co-op Community Room on Highway 62 in Berryville. Grammy-nominated flutist John Tuhawks, a Carroll County resident, will perform as well. Eureka Springs United Women in Faith President Lynn Baker is facilitating the screening. Dawn Land is about Native Americans who live in the area of what is now known as the state of Maine, as well as some other areas in New England. Children from Native American families were taken from their families and put into boarding schools. From 1860 until 1978, there were approximately 357 boarding schools that operated across 30 states. And during that time, they housed over 60,000 Native American children who were taken from their families, forced to assimilate into the white culture. Baker says illuminating racial injustice is a priority of United Women in Faith. United Women in Faith is an organization of about 800,000 women across the United States and worldwide. Um, And we have two main priorities. One priority is racial justice. And we also are uh, have an emphasis on climate justice. Uh, our focus for our organization is work with women, children, and youth because we know that those are the ones that are who are most impacted by these various issues that affect us. For more information about the Dawnland screening and other United Women of Faith programming in Carroll County, Lynn.Baker.UMW at Gmail. Time now for the Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report. I'm Paul Gatling. The new issue of the magazine is out this week with a cover story on what I refer to as one of Bentonville's best-kept business success stories. Outdoor Cap Company is celebrating its 45th birthday in 2022. The company's new president as of January this year is Janelle Harris. She says the milestone is an opportunity to regain momentum following the pandemic and position for a promising future. From small beginnings in 1977, the privately owned business is now one of the country's largest headwear suppliers, with more than 14,000 business customers across multiple distribution channels. The company develops, manufactures, and sells between 45 million and 50 million caps in a typical year. 
I had a chance to visit with Harris and company founder Paul Mahan for the story. If not for a successful side gig in the fireworks business during college, Mahan might today be a successful veterinarian. We've got that story online this week, and you can find that at nwabusinessjournal.com. We've got more news after the break on today's Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report. Support for the Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report is provided by the Arkansas State Chamber of Commerce and Associated Industries of Arkansas. The Chamber's mission is to promote a pro-business, free enterprise agenda and prevent legislation, regulation, and rules that hinder business. ArkansasStateChamber.com Arkansas Blue Cross and Blue Shield For more than 70 years, Arkansas Blue Cross and Blue Shield has used its knowledge and compassion to create healthcare solutions for individuals and businesses. More information at ArkansasBlueCross.com First Security is proud to be only in Arkansas. They offer smart solutions for personal and business banking, plus convenient services and community investment. First Security. Bank better. Member FDIC. Equal housing lender. Davey Carter has a pretty good seat to gauge the local, state, and national economies. From his perch as a regional president for Arkansas-based Centennial Bank, and as a director on the Memphis branch board of directors of the St. Louis Federal Reserve Bank. Carter collects a lot of data. Carter, who is also a former speaker of the Arkansas House of Representatives, shared his thoughts on the state of the economy in a recent interview with Roby Brock. What is the lay of the land from your customers, your clients, your neighbors in terms of what's happening in the economy right now? Just um, you know, kind of what is the feedback that you're getting in terms of the, the angst and the anxiety? Um, and if there's some good news in there, I'd love to hear that too. Well, it's definitely been an interesting year. I mean, things are uh, extremely um, just volatile in the stock market and the interest rate in environment. And of course, the main uh, topic of conversation uh, everywhere over the last, I don't know, four or five, six months has been uh, inflation and the cost of doing business. Um, you know, we've you know, when inflation leads um, the morning headlines on the Today Show and people are talking about it at the coffee shop, you know, it's uh, it's forefront of of mind uh, for everybody. Um, so, you know, that's that's but, you know, on the other hand, you know, there's been a lot of still a lot of economic activity. I mean, the every business you know I go to locally and you know, all of our customers are extremely busy. Uh, and so, you know, you just got a really hot economy right now, uh, but the inflation problem is uh, is a problem. So, you know, you've seen the Fed step in recently to try to help address some of that. Yeah, let's talk about the Fed's raising that Fed funds rate by an aggressive three quarters of a percentage point. Um, they've indicated they may do even more. Um, what, what's going to be the effect of that from a, a banker's perspective, from a customer perspective? Give me both of those points of view. Well, you know, first, I mean, the good thing about this, uh, you know, is hopefully this will help ease the pain on these inflationary pressures. You know, that's the goal of of doing that. And I do think we'll see another 150, 200 basis points increase, uh, you know, from them, you know, the rest throughout the rest of the year. I think they have what one, two, three, four, five, five meetings left. Um, you know, from the from the commercial real estate side, um, you know, it does make you know under underwriting and, and deal making a little more difficult. Um, uh, just because of the, the 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 matrix and the models that you know the people use the cost of borrowing, you know, obviously just is, is going to go up. 
Um, cap rate should should go up. You know, values of real estate. You know, get you know a lot of uh, sectors are based on cap rates. You know, from the consumer side, you know, it's just it's it's basic blocking and tackling. The cost of borrowing is going to go up. It's going to cost more to you know to, to buy a vehicle. Your credit card balance, your credit card rates are going to increase. Uh, and probably, you know, the most significant thing that hits closest to home, no pun intended, is mortgage rates. You know, mortgage rates have risen significantly over the past two or three weeks. You know, you've gone from 30-year uh, fixed rate mortgages from three, three and a quarter to almost 6% now. So that takes a lot of buying power out, you know, from, from the home buyer, you know, that's out, uh, you know, trying to, you know, to buy a house. So kind of reconcile for people who don't understand these moves by the feds in terms of, um, well, you know how they're trying to get some sort of ultimate end game here. It's a it's a great balancing test, and quite frankly, they're in a in a very difficult position. Uh, but they've got to get inflation under control. If they don't get ahead of it and get it under control, you know, this could go on for years and years and years and years. So you know, even as the economy keeps moving on in a in a in a, in a very robust fashion, if prices and costs of doing business keep going up, you're really just kind of treading water. So they've got to stop it. They're doing the right thing. I think they're probably. Yeah, we should, you know, I think in hindsight, they've even admitted that we should have done it earlier. Uh, they thought it was a temporary um, issue, you know, based on supply chain and all the things that came out of came out of COVID. Um, so, if if prices don't go down and inflation doesn't stop, then you know that's extremely concerning. You know, with as rates uh, move up. Uh, but you're right. I mean, the downside is, and I think what spooked you know the, the the markets is that you know there's a really good chance of you know, by doing this, you know, the, the economy is going to slow to a point where, you know, we could go into some recession. I think most people think that that's probably going to happen. The severity of uh, of it is, you know, there's a lot of different opinions on that. You know, I personally think that, uh, you know, we will you know, it, go into some, you know, it's slow down, but I don't think it's going to be some great uh, tragic event. I think we'll get through it and it just needs to happen. Things need to slow down a little bit. What's one thing you'll be keeping your eye on uh, in the next couple of weeks to see if the Fed's moves are having the intended impact that they want? Um, it's going to take some time for this to filter through the system. So, you know, constantly every month we're getting uh, updates on uh, these, you know, it's in inflation and, and employment. At the end of the day, the Federal Reserve has a dual mandate. It's maximum employment uh, with stable prices. And so you watch, you know, the employment rate. We watch all of the inflation uh, numbers that are going to come in month to month. But I think you know the, the the big question today is you know whether they move another seventy five basis points or fifty in the July meeting. Uh, I think the market thought they kind of priced in another seventy five a couple of days ago, but now it's is kind of backed off of some of that. So, you know, that, that's the real question, what happens in this July meeting. And that is Davey Carter, and he's regional president for Centennial Bank, one of the state's largest banks, and a director on the Memphis branch board of directors of the St. Louis Federal Reserve Bank. He spoke recently with Roby Brock on the Sunday morning television program, Talk Business and Politics. In Northwest Arkansas, you can catch that show every Sunday morning at 1030 on KFSM Channel 5. In other news this week, we reported some business moves in Fayetteville's downtown area. The Consumer Banking Division of New York-based J.P. Morgan Chase & Company will open its first Northwest Arkansas bank branch at 608 West Dixon Street in Fayetteville. That site was the Fayetteville location for Jonesboro-based outdoor retailer Gearhead Outfitters 
which is relocating its Fayetteville store to 101 North Block Avenue, just north of the square. Ted Hergett is the owner of Gearhead Outfitters. He said he closed the Fayetteville store in May after J.P. Morgan Chase approached him about leasing the building. Gearhead bought the Block Avenue building, formerly a dry cleaning business, for $1.4 million earlier this year. Both Chase Bank and Gearhead Outfitters expect to open their new Fayetteville stores by the end of the year. Arkansas's 84 FDIC-insured banks together posted net income of $458 million for the three-month period that ended March 31st, down nearly 20% from the first quarter a year ago. The decline is primarily due to an increase in provision expense set aside to protect against future loan losses. And Chipotle Mexican Grill will open in Fort Smith later this year. It'll be part of a multi-tenant redevelopment of the former Logan's Roadhouse restaurant in the northeast corner of Rogers Avenue at Interstate 540. You will find all of those stories online at nwabusinessjournal.com or our sister website, talkbusiness.net. I'm Paul Gatling, and that's the Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report. Until next time, thanks for listening. This is Ozarks at Large. Business and art are combining this month at Walton Arts Center. For the 12th time in the past 25 years, a touring production is using the Walton Arts Center as a launching pad. The upcoming international tour of A Chorus Line is assembling its elements here before opening in Japan. Actually, the first four performances for the tour will be on the Walton Arts Center stage beginning tomorrow night. An estimate from the Walton Arts Center regarding the economic impact such an operation has on the local economy includes 360 hotel rooms rented, at least $13,000 spent on meals for cast and crew, and paychecks for three dozen local hires to help with the technical production. Scott Galbraith, the Vice President of Programming at Walton Arts Center, says all the pieces from staging to choreography are being put together now before the production flies to Asia. It's different for each show, but most often what they will do is they will put together the physical production and the staging somewhere else. So they'll go through the design process and the build process of the set, the costumes, the properties themselves. That will happen elsewhere. They will rehearse the show elsewhere. And then all of the elements come to here in sequence. They'll first load in the show, then they'll put lights in the air, then they add the cast, and it all gels together. So this is where all of the puzzle pieces really come together. It was a little different from Blue Man Group because they literally built the show here. That's the exception to the rule. Most of the times when we tech and launch a tour, it's them bringing all the pieces together for a two-week-ish period where they literally put the puzzle together, rehearse it, get all the kinks out, and then we are fortunate typically to, to provide an audience, first couple of audiences, so they can have the sense of timing and the rhythm and they know where the laughs are and they get all the kinks worked out and then they go on the road. All right, so a venue like Walton Learn Center provides obviously infrastructure, live audience. What else do you have to do while someone's here teching? Um, we need to provide a lot of support services for them because they don't necessarily, they try to come with everything, but if they need to source something, whether it's theatrical equipment, whether it's at this point, it could be uh, PE, you know, the PPE for COVID. I mean, whatever. But we try and help them in whatever way they need. So we support and assist. Um, we provide media opportunities for them so that they can start to get that part of their um, their show going. Because quite often, now this this tour, a course line, is headed overseas. So their marketing needs may be different. But different. But for example, typically coming into this setting, they don't have a TV commercial shot yet. They don't have press pictures. So we help provide the space, the opportunity, 
and sometimes an audience for that. But otherwise, it is about sourcing. It's helping them with whatever they need. If they need additional lighting equipment, if they need hardware, whatever it is, we try and help connect them with those resources. Can that then play? I mean, someone who's connected with uh, this production talks to someone else and said, you know where we teched? We teched at Fayetteville at Walton Arts Center. Maybe you'd look into that. Is that a sort of thing that happens? That has happened a lot. And Dan Shear, who's producing this show, has teched a couple shows here. So it's it absolutely is about relationship. And that is part of the allure of teching in a place like Fayetteville because it's outside of the spotlight of some of the more major cities. It's also less expensive to do this work in, 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 a, in an area like ours. So there are many attractive um, elements that, that for a producer to come here. And one of them is, it is, if we weren't attractive, it wouldn't happen a second, third, whereas I think we're on 12th or 13th time now. Uh, it's, it's, we've, had, we've done it many times, and they know that it's a safe place to do this. Scott Galbraith is Vice President of Programming at Walton Arts Center, and he talked with us yesterday about the tech rehearsals of a chorus line taking place at the venue this month. Scott mentioned the producer of the show, Dan Schur. Dan was also available for a quick conversation yesterday. I asked him how he puts together a production of an iconic Broadway show for an international tour. The first step in the process is obtaining the rights to produce Chorus Line, which is no easy task, especially if you're um, proposing taking it around the world as we are to Japan. So that's a long process to negotiate for rights um, and, and obtain the rights from John Braylio, who is Michael Bennett's original lawyer, who Michael Bennett created the show, who has blessed Big League with, with this, this opportunity. And then it takes financing, which I, I, I'm in charge of, uh, putting the money together, the package of budgeting. And then really it's just a long, tedious, artistic process. Um, it takes, although it appears when you watch for two hours, it's very seamless. Um, it takes five full weeks of eight to ten hours a day with everybody learning to, to work in sync and work seamlessly. Does it be, not routine, does it become familiar enough to where you don't have concerns before that first day of getting everyone together? No, never. In fact, for me, I, I experience the stress all over again every time. I've, I'm, 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 I've been doing this for 20 years, and I've almost started to come to these technical rehearsals later because seeing the early process and how, um, how many mistakes happen and how out of sync it is, is just, it gets more and more frustrating as I get older. But it also leads to the um, incredible satisfaction I have when it is uh, running on all cylinders, and it is smooth, which hopefully it will be by this weekend when we have Fayetteville audiences. Yeah, I was going to ask about that moment then, if it's stressful, if you've got to do this diligent work, what is the moment that you go, oh yeah, mm -hmm. I could do this yeah. again? Um, it's the, it's all about the audience. It's the, you know, for me, you can tell an audience, depending on the show, it has different moments, but you can really feel an audience very early as a producer. You can feel what they're how they're going to respond and also how the show's doing. So there's always, in some shows, there's that first joke and you can tell the level of laugh. You really can tell from that point on. Or, for example, in the beginning of Chorus Line, there's an amazing moments, really quite spectacular, where it flips from internal and audition, um, the, the Zach, the director's teaching it, and they're facing away from the audience, which is in its way, in its own way, very high concept. The whole show is very high concept, was very ahead of its time. And then there's this moment where he says, okay, facing away from the mirror five six seven eight and they all come towards the audience and the orchestra kicks in in full and you can tell you can tell then also what kind of audience hopefully that'll get an ovation from the audience what's it like for the executive producer when that first audience does see it what what's 
What's it like 10 minutes before curtain? Uh, 10 minutes before curtain, it's basically like this is never going to happen. We're the same mistakes we've been battling, the demons in the, in the programming and the, you know, is going to come bite us in the bum again. But yeah, when it starts to go smooth, I, I also have this moment as a producer um, in all shows where it's about three quarters of the way through where I feel like we round the bend and I know we're going to make it. And um, that's really when I ease up, when I like sort of sit back in my seat with a smile and realize we've done it. Now, that's not saying we've done a great job because that will that will wait to see the audience response. And we can never count on um, we never assume what the audience, how they're going to respond. This is actually an interesting high concept ending, too. So it's kind of hard to get exactly how the audience feels because they created a show that almost ha- that actually has no bows, which is a very fascinating thing. The metaphor is that like the chorus line goes on and on. Showbiz is sort of here and fleeting, but continues in our in our minds and our spirits. So we added one one full company bow. But the original production, and I'm sure those theater aficionados know this, is the line, well, I won't give it away, but the original production is just a black, it's just a fade to black, and has a very high metaphor count if you think about it. Dan Schur is the producer of A Chorus Line, which has been in tech rehearsal this month at Walton Arts Center. A Chorus Line opened in 1975, won nine Tony Awards and the Pulitzer Prize for Drama. The original Broadway run lasted for more than 6,100 performances. There was a lengthy run on London's West End, and there have been revivals on both Broadway and the West End. The show centers on a rehearsal and the stories of the dancers seeking work. Bayork Lee was in the original Tony and Pulitzer Prize winning run and served as assistant choreographer with Michael Bennett and Bob Avian. And she's directing this production. I saw it from the ground up and... um can really appreciate it even more now because at that point I was taking notes and trying to reproduce things for the next day because things were changing all the time. But, you know, after, you know, we're going to be 50 years old come 2025 and I've, I've done maybe over 50 productions. <laughs> but every time I, I recreate the show, I find new things. I find because the material, you know, this is a very young cast. They're right out of college. And that is the wonderful thing about big league. You know, they have a young cast. They give them an opportunity right out of school to perform with professionals and go to Japan and tour. Um, And so they make me a better director because I have to, you know, know how to direct them. It's not like working. I've just come from Spain working with Antonio Banderas. I don't have to do anything. Antonio Banderas knows what he has to do. But um, a a young person playing that role or playing a 22-year-old playing Sheila, who's supposed to be 32, you know, going on 40, um, I really have to uh, help them with their skills. Well, speaking of age, I mean, when you saw this come from the ground up you were in your 20s things happen we get older and I'm thinking that you just see this show differently because of life experience as well exactly and especially after the pandemic totally different perspective because Zach asks what are you going to do when you can't dance anymore (laughs) they have answers now 
people are still moved by that Paul monologue. There is some young kid out west who's being bullied because he's gay, and when he sees our show and he and his story is exposed, he can come out of the closet. So many people have told us, you know, because of that monologue. Or Bobby's father, who was an alcoholic and abusive, you know, there's so many stories. Or Sheila's father, who was not, you know, faithful to. Uh, they're human stories. They exist. And, you know, it's great to have a hummable song, right? You've got to have that to have legs. But the real value of theater is what you just talked about. It touches people. It's not just something you hum on the way home. Yes, exactly. And that's one of the reasons why Michael Bennett did not want an intermission. He said, Bayork, we're not, you tell people, we're not doing Shakespeare. We don't want anybody to talk about or um, have an opinion until this is all over. There is no intermission. And of course, I go to, you know, Germany and all these countries and we need an intermission. We got to sell the liquor, blah, blah, blah. But when the story has an arc and there is no intermission, people at the end, they can make their own judgment. I'm sure you've reflected on the fact that you have this work of art that has been such an important part of your life for so long. A lot of people don't, aren't fortunate enough to have something that is part of them that they can adapt with and change their role with. That's wonderful, isn't it? I've had the best life ever, starting at five with Yul Brynner and, and going on to, you know, work with uh, uh, Richard Rogers and Hammerstein and Flower Drum Song and then becoming a part of Michael Bennett's uh, stable of uh, dancers and uh, doing the movie Jesus Christ Superstar. I mean, just on and on. I've had a great career. And when he handed me the baton opening night, he said, um, and we were downtown and we didn't know what we had. We were just so nervous. Um, we saw, you know, uh, Jackie Onassis in the audience and Groucho Marx and Lucille Ball. And the, they're all coming to see us. We were unemployed a year ago, you know. And um, I have had, he gave me that baton and he said, you're going to go around the world, Byrick, and you're going to, and I go, oh, yes, Michael. I had just done two flop shows with him, <laughs> you know. And I said, oh, yes, yes, yes. And here I am. It's going to be 50 years in 2025. And I, am, uh, I never get tired of it. I feel like a blushing bride every time I go out because it's a new cast, new, you know, whether it's in Spanish or whether it's, you know, 22 years old. I, they invigorate me to um, be a better director. Bay Orkley, an original cast member of A Chorus Line and director of the current production that has been in tech rehearsal Walton Arts Center this month. The first performances and the only U.S. performances of the tour are this weekend at Walton Arts Center beginning tomorrow night. You can go to waltonartscenter.org for more information. It's easy to focus on a big story as it's happening, but what about months down the line? Rosa Cruz and her husband, Luis Felipe Colón, both retired, haven't had electricity for four months. So, I'm Adrian Florido, and since January, I've been in Puerto Rico, bringing you first-hand accounts of communities recovering from Hurricane Maria. Public radio brings you these stories every day, but that takes time and money, and let me tell you, the costs add up. There's the rental car I need to get to the most remote parts of the island where the recovery's been the slowest, 
I've bought hundreds of batteries for my recorder to capture people's voices. And NPR sent me here with this little satellite console so that when the power goes out and my internet drops, I can still connect to file my reports. But get this, connecting to that thing costs $6 a minute. Don't worry, we only use it when the power goes out. None of this is possible without the support of listeners who, like you, value quality journalism. In the barrio of Guaraguao, Mariliana Sanchez says since her son's school reopened in November, two teachers have been transferred. We're able to bring you these stories because we're still here, I'm still here, because public radio stays after other news outlets have left. We stick around because we're committed to sticking with the story. Show us you're committed, too. Your commitment to the incredible journalism and radio you hear through public radio on KUAF can be a financial contribution to this public radio station, KUAF. We have been your connection to NPR for more than 37 years, and you can make a contribution right now in the amount that you choose. Actually, you can make that contribution now or at any time at supportkuaf.com. Thank you. Very much. This month, the last of our fiscal year, we have a goal to raise $50,000 to keep us strong and make sure we can pay for programs like Morning Edition, Ozarks at Large, and the live news coverage that you hear on KUAF. At last check, we were past $33,000 thanks to everyone who has contributed so far. The Northwest Arkansas Jazz Society and KUAF present Bruce Barth, Not Cohen, and Steve Wilson in a Jazz Power Trio premiere performance June 25th at the Roots Festival headquarters in Fayetteville. Tickets for this performance include beverages and hors d'oeuvres. Proceeds benefit the Jazz Education Fund. Digjazz.com for tickets. Associate Professor at the University of Arkansas Music Department, expanding our musical boundaries with Sound Pinimeter. We open Sound Pinimeter today with cellist Yo-Yo Ma interpreting Johann Sebastian Bach's Prelude from the Cello Suite No. 1 in G Major. I bet many of you listeners recognize this melody. In fact, this prelude is one of the most frequently played pieces of music in the tradition of Western art. This selection has been popularized in movies, restaurants, elevators, commercials, weddings, funerals, as well as in the concert hall. When I was writing Sound Pedimeter earlier this week, I was playing this prelude at home, and my partner said, that's my morning alarm. Oh yes, I know. It is quite beautiful to wake up to this melody every morning. Thank you. 
That was cellist Yo-Yo Ma interpreting Johann Sebastian Bach's prelude from the cello suite number one in G major. Bach, a Baroque composer that lived in the 1700s, wrote in many genres and for the instruments that were available and popular in his time. I often wonder what had Bach done if he knew some of our contemporary ensembles and sounds. Acclaimed American banjo player, band leader, and composer Bela Fleck, who is mostly known for his virtuosism playing the banjo, has embraced the music of Johann Sebastian Bach. Let us listen to his take on Bach's Partita number 1003, originally written for solo violin. Banjo player Bella Fleck interpreting an excerpt of Johann Sebastian Bach's Partita number 1003, originally written for solo violin. To close sound penimeter today, I have chosen a rather unusual version of Minuet in G from Johann Sebastian Bach's Notebook for Anna Magdalena Bach, a collection of pieces compiled by the composer as a gift to his wife. Ana Magdalena was a singer and composer and the mother of 13 of his children. I bet those of you with kids may relate to the challenges of working parents raising families. Me too. Enjoy the beginning of 1965's hit song Lover's Concerto 
by American pop all-female group The Toys, inspired by Bach's very famous melody. This is Leah Uribe, Associate Professor at the University of Arkansas Music Department, expanding our musical boundaries with sound paint. The history of opera of the Ozarks dates back to 1950, and the current season begins tomorrow night at Inspiration Point just outside Eureka Springs. The work to get to opening night was a bit different. I was one of the staff uh, that caught uh, COVID early on, and I was quarantined in my little room here for um, five or six days, maybe longer. Um, and I directed the majority of Pinocchio on Zoom, as well as a little night music. I, I staged the most of the first act of the two acts on Zoom. J.J. Hudson, stage director for this season's Opera in the Ozarks, as well as others involved in the music, will tell us much more on tomorrow's show. That's at noon and 7 p.m. on 91.3 KUAF. You can also listen by asking your smart speaker to please play Ozarks at Large, and you can listen whenever you want by activating the Ozarks at Large podcast. Our daily shows are available as a podcast through all major podcast distributors. There's a refugee crisis because of Russia's war. Hundreds of thousands of people have fled. State of Ukraine, a new podcast from NPR, has episodes available now with reporters on the ground, conversations with politicians and officials, everything you need to know about the Russian invasion of Ukraine, with multiple episodes offered each day. Learn about the conflict's past, its possible futures, and what each new development means for the rest of the world. State of Ukraine, a new podcast from NPR, available now at npr.org slash podcasts. Arkansas Repair Collective will hold a workshop on learning basic skills to repair everyday objects and electronics Saturday afternoon at 2 at the Fayetteville Public Library. You can bring with you a broken item or electronic device and learn hands-on repair techniques and work with tools. The workshop will take place inside the Family Fabrication and Robotics Lab, but Fab Lab orientation is not required for the workshop. Registration is requested, but it is not required for this event, which is considered a drop-in. For more information, you can go to faylib.org. Ozark Folkways in Winslow will present an outdoor concert featuring 
Susan Shore and Michael Cochran, Saturday night, music beginning at 6. Their repertoire ranges from high lonesome traditional ballads to swing and contemporary folk songs. Proceeds will support the musicians and the mission of Ozark Folkways. If you'd like more information, ozarkfolkways.org. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, in Spiro, Oklahoma. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Contributors today included Michael Hiblin, Roby Brock and Paul Gatling with Talk Business and Politics, Leo Ribe, and Jacqueline Froelich. Jacqueline collected the sound and information about the screening of the documentary Donland. Timothy Dennis produced today's edition of Sound Perimeter. Stephanie Brock produced today's Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report, and additional material provided today by the newsroom at KUAR, Public Radio for Little Rock and Central Arkansas. Finally, our theme is titled The First Hurrah. It is written and performed by Daryl Sean. Daryl still performing some live online concerts, usually beginning around 4 o'clock in the afternoon, our time. You can find out more by accessing Daryl Sean's Facebook or Instagram feeds. And finally, Finally, Sherry Ottaviano is our membership director at KUAF. You can support us at any time by going to supportkuaf.com. From the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio, I'm Kyle Kelms. Thanks for being with us. We'll talk again soon.